I need 60 minutes. 60 minutes to me! 60 minutes! No big you no mercy! Shut the Shut the bubble! You got me! We're gonna ring the bell! We're gonna ring that championship bell! Welcome to Pravisky and Kane, a podcast that is talking mostly about Boston sports, and there is quite a lot going on in that region right now. Jeff, let's start with the green and white. It's not looking so good for the Celtics, down 2-0 to Atlanta, no Avery Bradley. We'll see when Kelly Olynyk can return, but... Let's be honest, Jeff. These first two games have been ugly, even with the comeback the Celtics were able to make in game one. Still, overall, a, a rough start to the series for Boston. What is your takeaway from these first two games? You know, I'll be straight with you, Bob. I was all right with the fact they lost game one, all right? You know, you get some first game jitters, young team, really no uh, you know, superstar on there playing in a ruckus crowd down in Atlanta, um, you know, and but they showed some fortitude, came back, fought, played hard, you know, lost by one point, losing Avery Bradley. You know, I understand that. Things can happen like that in the playoffs. The other night's game, losing by, oh, I mean, excuse me, only scoring seven points in the first quarter? That's ridiculous, man. I mean, that's horrible. That's UConn basketball uh, opponent bad. I mean, that was just terrible. That should, you know, this is a team really that, you know, all year long, you and I have talked about it, uh, you know, on the air, off the air about, you know, our appreciation for Brad Stevens. I mean, heading into the playoffs, the last four games, and now these first two in the playoffs, ill-prepared and seven points in the first quarter. I mean, they're lucky that the Hawks were cold the second half of the first quarter. Otherwise, it could have been 40 to 7. Insane. You know, we all we talked about this on these airwaves. Uh, you know, how great we felt about the Celtics heading in to, uh, to the playoffs and Brad Stevens and what Danny Ainge has done. And, 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 you know, we thought, listen, if they win one series, you know, that's, that's pretty good. They get to game seven. I'll be happy now if they win a game. I mean, what a difference three weeks makes. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head right there, Jeff. The goal has quickly become, especially without Bradley, to avoid getting swept for the second year in a row. Now, you talked about Brad Stevens' role in the team getting off to slow starts in each of the first two games. I think he certainly deserves some of the blame, but I wouldn't lay all of it at Brad Stevens' feet. You look at the injuries from Isaiah Thomas being banged up to the fact that Jay Crowder is clearly less than 100%. You look at the fatigue that's set in for this team down the stretch, which is perhaps a product of how hard they play over the course of a full 82-game season. I think this was a good lesson for Stevens in the sense of pacing his players through the course of the regular season because they've seemingly hit a wall at the worst possible time. And it showed at the end of the regular season, of course, with the exception of the comeback against Miami, which gave people hope that they would shake that off going into the postseason. That would reinvigorate them. But I think it has more to do with the opponent than anything else. The reality is it really hasn't changed all that much. And, Jeff, I just can't help but look at the fact that, if not for an honest oversight from the NBA Board of Governors, the Celtics would be playing in South Beach right now against Miami instead of the Hawks, who – 
out of that cluster of Boston, Charlotte, Miami, and Atlanta, Atlanta is the worst opponent for the other three to draw, and that's who Boston got because they changed the rules heading into this season, whereas the division winner is once how ties were settled. It's no longer the case. However, the letter of the law now states that a two-team tie will not be determined by one squad winning their division. And this has been a problem that's gone in the NBA for quite some time. It's the reason last year that San Antonio ended up having to play the Clippers in the first round, which both sides were somewhat upset about. And so the NBA decided to take a look at it and address this policy. But by saying two teams, not envisioning that you could have this four-team tie scenario, what they've done is the Celtics are the ones who, out of these four, have gotten the short end of the stick, drawing Atlanta, when in fact they should have been playing in Miami. Now, Miami is no easy opponent, and it wouldn't have guaranteed anything. But, like I've been saying here, you don't want to play the Hawks. They are the best defense in the NBA post-All-Star break. They are a well-coached squad. They have two elite big men in Al Horford and Paul Millsap. It's just a very dangerous team to go against, and you can see how it's played out for the Celtics to the point that, like you said, three weeks ago, people are thinking second round. More delusional fans are thinking, can they pull off an upset in the second round and get all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals? Now most people are on board with the thought of, let's just make this a competitive series. Let's avoid getting swept. Maybe if we can get two games, that would be nice. But there's a minority out there who thinks Boston can get past Atlanta. Yeah, and that was the one thing. When I saw the final schedule coming out, uh, you know, for the playoffs, and I'm thinking the Hawks, and, you know, uh, the Hawks obviously uh, last year were the number one seed in the East. Uh, Not a whole lot has changed from last year to this year. They still have much talent across the board. And I think, you know, last year we kind of looked at it, the fact that they were going up against Cleveland and LeBron James, Kevin Love, and Kyrie Irving. You're sitting there and you're saying, all right, if you win one game, you know, it, it, it's good. It's better to make the playoffs, uh, you know, with this team and, and give them this, um, you know, basically give them a little bit of playoff experience. It's a good thing. We all expect them to make the next jump. And, and unfortunately, I believe they've taken a step back. And, you know, you can sit there and you can blame the injuries all you want. Uh, at the end of it, they're just not playing well. They're taking bad shots. They, you know, they don't have a shooter. Um, you know, Isaiah Thomas, as much of a spark plug as he has been, against some of the better defensive teams, he can be taken out. And, you know, you talked about it. Jay Crowder's not 100%. Kelly Linick, uh, you know, didn't play the other night. So uh, it, it's tough. Um, you know, but the old adage goes, a series doesn't, uh, you know, start until a road team wins and you know, Celtics hold serve, and if they can get into the game five and and swing it, you never know what could happen. I like the glass half full mentality from Jeff Cade. So why don't we talk about the adjustments the Celtics need to make to hold serve in game three and potentially game four as well. I think that I'd like to see Marcus Smart be involved more, Jeff, in the pick and roll, give him more opportunities to create because 
for as much as people harp on his shooting woes, that was some of the best offense the Celtics had yesterday, and he's really made tremendous strides operating out of the pick and roll this season. So I would like to see Brad Stevens utilize Smart in that capacity more often moving forward. You need, uh, you know, you definitely need Marcus Smart to step up. Yeah, there are a lot of people talking about his shooting. You know, he he's definitely, you know, when they drafted him, I kind of looked at him as, you know, an Avery Bradley clone. Great, uh, great defensive player, wasn't great with the shot. Avery Bradley's shot has come along a lot. You know, it's kind of like a mix between an Avery Bradley and a and a Tony Allen, and and you're hoping that Marcus Smart can develop. You know, picked what was he number five or six overall? You're hoping he can develop into that player who can who can do a little bit of everything. The one thing, you know, glass half full that I have with Stevens is his ability to put in little wrinkles uh, in this offense, you know, that can that can really help with this team. He did it, uh, you know, all season long. He did it when he was at Butler. Um, you know, they what they need to do is they need to be able to, you know, really get transitional points. And, and they're not getting that right now. They're not getting, you know, the offensive rebounds and, and, and putting back the shots, you know, that, that they miss. Uh, they're not taking uh, advantage of Atlanta shooting, you know, sub uh, 30% in, in the second half of the first quarter. They're just not taking advantage of this stuff, you know. And, and I know they live and die a lot by the three ball, but, you know, give me someone who can drive to the basket. The Celtics need that right now. They need to get in and drive to the basket, get the points in the paint, get the easy shots, and then leave the three-pointer uh, for when you really need it. Don't try to build your whole offense around that, especially against this really good uh, Atlanta, Hawks sec- uh, Atlanta Hawks defense. Yeah, Jeff, you talk about the Celtics not doing a whole lot of scoring in transition, which for a team that struggles to operate out of the half court, it becomes so pivotal that you get those transition baskets. And part of the problem is that Atlanta does such a good job taking care of the ball. The other part is that Boston simply needs more speed out on the court. So I think what's become apparent is that Jared Sellinger's minutes have to be drastically cut down. Brad Stevens seemed to realize in game two that he's not someone he's going to be able to rely on this series. Doesn't mean he can't help in a future series if there is to be one, but this is not the series for Jared Sullinger. The Celtics need to play one big man at a time, and quite frankly, some of their best lineups have featured Jonas Jerebko playing at center. So I'd like to see them stick exclusively to one big man on the court at a time, and that center either being Amir Johnson or Jonas Jerebko. I'd like Amir Johnson. I like what he brings to the table. Um, I liked what he did at the at, towards the end of the uh, you know towards the end of the uh, season, uh, but the thing with Amir Johnson that I really like about him is, you know, he's not a huge big. He only stands at six foot nine. You know, he he's more suited to play that power forward, but he does have that big body uh, that allows him to get in and play the five. So I wouldn't mind seeing uh, Amir Johnson really step up and, and be that big man in this series until you can see a guy like Kelly Olynyk coming back, because I think Kelly Olynyk can really help a lot, um, especially on defense and, and, and stopping a guy like Millsap, who's had, you know, a, a good game one, a decent game uh, two, and then also, you know, basically taking over the Corver. Corver's killed them. Corver has absolutely killed them, uh, you know, on defense. Yeah, Jeff, to be honest, I think the, the player who has killed them 
is Paul Millsap. He has been a monster this series, especially in game one. And Al Horford has had some big shots, some timely baskets that significantly swung momentum in favor of Atlanta or halted Boston's momentum at the time. So he's another player that has killed them. And that's not surprising. This is one of the best big man duos in the entire NBA. Also, at times, the point guard play. The Celtics, without Avery Bradley, the only one who has the speed to match up with Jeff Teague is Terry Rozier. And overall, I thought he was solid yesterday, but the fact remains that he's a rookie who isn't seasoned enough for this moment, for that matchup. So Jeff Teague is also killing the Celtics. Yeah, I agree. Schroeder to a lesser degree, but also has given them fits at times. So it's really just, it's a difficult matchup for Boston, which leads me, Jeff, as we start to tilt the hourglass over it. Now we look at things from a half-empty perspective. How do you think a first-round loss, and let's, let's say that it's not a sweep, but that Boston only gets one game. How do you think that would impact the Celtics in free agency? It hurts them to a degree. Um, and it all depends on who's going to be, you know, that, that free agent who comes here. Is it going to be a free agent who wants to come in here and say, hey, you know, they've, they've got to the playoffs and back-to-back years, 48-win team. Um, you know, they have the ability. they got a lot of pieces around there. I'm that one guy that's stopping them from really challenging in the Eastern Conference. Or is it someone that's just there and goes, why do I want to play in Boston? You know, uh, they, they've been knocked out in the first round the last two years. Uh, you know, they, they got a young nucleus, but, you know, it's cold up there in the wintertime. Why do I want to play in Boston when I could go to L.A. where they got all sorts of money and, you know, the glitz and the glamour and all that other stuff for the Lakers? Um, it hurts. But the one equalizer here is Brad Stevens. And I'll, and I'll push it back to, you know, his recruiting days uh, in college. This is a guy who can get someone in front of him um, and, and convince them to play for him. So, I look at it, and I think that Brad Stevens is a draw uh, for the Celtics, even if they lose in the first round. And, and again, whether they win no games one, two, or, or, or force a game seven, um, I think it would be detrimental for the free agency for them not to win a series, but not as bad as it would be uh, you know, if they didn't have Stevens. Absolutely. Brad Stevens is this team's best asset. And that's been clear for quite some time already. It's going to be interesting to see how free agency plays out. But Jeff, to me, you look at who's available that would take this team up a notch. And the big names at the top of the board are Kevin Durant, who there are reasons that it would make sense. But until it happens, if I'm a Celtics fan, I'm not holding out hopes. That's going to happen. It makes all the sense in the world for the Celtics, and <laughs> but not enough for Durant, in my opinion. Yes, I like that. Well said. Like I was saying there to a, a worse ability, that <laughs> there are reasons it makes sense for Kevin Durant, but there's probably not enough of them. And then you look at the second name on the board, and they're playing him in this series. It's Al Horford. But the problem there is that the Celtics would have to – overspend to get Horford and that might be worth it but Atlanta can 
outspend Boston, obviously, since they have Horford's bird rights. And so it really comes down to what the Hawks Damn you, Larry Bird. Exactly. <laughs> the one time that he's come back to screw us. So it really comes down to how the Hawks feel about Al Horford. And time will tell, and but Horford's I'd be surprised if they let him. He's a great player. It's more to do with his age and the fact yeah. that this is not a team that's in championship contention. So, And this is one of those things, Bobby, that you know, when we were talking about this around the trade deadline, uh, you know, we talked about this and I said, I don't want Horford. I, I don't want him here, even for just for this season, because I didn't think he was enough to get them over the over the hump. You know, uh, he's a great number two. You know, he would be an absolute phenomenal number two uh, if you could get someone else in there. I just don't think he's enough to get over the hump for the Celtics. I think Al Horford would get the Celtics over the hump of a series like this one, if he were to switch teams, potentially at least. And then what you're looking yeah, at. Yeah, but are you in NBA pur- purgatory then? Are you just, you know, winning around well, maybe two? And that's, that's, that's the, the question that Atlanta will have to ask itself this offseason. In regards to the Celtics, I think with the cap space they have, that adding Al Horford could serve as one piece and ultimately your second best player on a championship contender if you can go out and get that perennial all-star caliber player like a Kevin Durant. If you're to walk into the meeting with KD with Al Horford as another valuable piece of ammunition, that really helps your chances. Not to say they'd get him. I still think that it's a long shot, but it helps your case, and it certainly helps your case to future free agents of Kevin Durant's caliber moving forward. Yeah, I agree with you there. I can 100% agree with you there. Jeff, although I got to say, I still think that the closest thing the Celtics have to a sure thing is that Brooklyn Nets draft pick. And we will find out come lottery night, May 17th, what the cards hold for the Celtics. They've gotten a lot of bad bounces from the ping pong balls, <laughs> you but think? they're, they're going to need the lottery gods to smile on them that night. Again, it's May 17th. And if Boston can come up with a top three pick, Brooklyn finished with the third worst record in the NBA, especially if they can get a top two pick because of the drop off that comes after Simmons and Ingram, it puts them in a very favorable position and could potentially save Jeff. What otherwise might be, an underwhelming offseason. That's the big thing. I mean, the, the ping pong balls, I mean, if you go back, I mean, all the way back to, um, you know, unfortunately, Lenny Bias, uh, you know, passing away, you know, a night or two after the draft over, um, you know, Coke overtoast back in 86 or 87. Then you, you just look back and the Tim Duncan year. I mean, you have two top five picks and you get the third and the sixth and you just select Chauncey Bilp and Ron Mercer. And we all know what happened with the Greg Oden and um, we've been talking about him all night. It's very slim, <laughs> baby. Kevin Durant. <laughs> we all know what happened there. Now, when that happened, you didn't have Rick Pitino running the team. You had Danny Ainge, a guy with some smarts who was able to pedal, um, you know, that fifth pick in the draft, uh, you know, to the, the um, yep, to the Sonic Bucks there. Uh, Sonic, Sonic, you had yeah, it. You got to trust yourself. You did. I did. I got to trust myself sometimes. You know, you know the basketball man. You know the round ball. We don't talk about as much as we do the other stuff. But 
Um, you know, he, he, Danny's done it in the past. So I hope that they get that top, you know, that top one or two pick. I would love to see Simmons here. I know we talked about this earlier and, and I was, you know, a proponent of trading that pick uh, at the trade deadline. I was definitely a proponent of it because I thought, you know, go get someone who can help now and, and don't draft someone that could take two or three years. Now that they've kept this pick, you know, I hope it's Simmons. I, I think Simmons fits in perfect here. I'm glad they kept the pick. That is going to be a very interesting debate, regardless of which teams have the top two picks in the draft. Hopefully, Boston is one of them, but we'll find out come May 17th. Transitioning now to the Diamond, Jeff, we've got a team that has more immediate problems in the Boston Red Sox. Let's start with what unfolded last night on the mound. Joe Kelly goes down early in the game, takes himself out due to shoulder concerns, and has already been placed on the DL. My question to you regarding Kelly is when he comes back, should they move him to the bullpen? Uh, <clears throat> you know, that's that's the one thing, because we started talking about with, with Erod, Eduardo, Rodriguez, Eduardo Rodriguez. When he comes back, who would move to the bullpen? And I thought right away um, you know, it, that the only guy that you could move to the bullpen is Joe Kelly, power arm. Uh, you know, you don't want Rick Porcello in the bullpen. You don't want to pay $20 million for a guy to sit in the bullpen. You know, Stephen Wright, um, he's pitched very well in his first couple starts here. Um, and, and really, a knuckleballer in the bullpen. I know they did it with uh, Tim Wakefield for a couple years as a closer. Um, but really, that's, that's awful tough there. So really, Joe Kelly's the only guy um, that you could set up and bring into that bullpen. And I hope when he comes back and Erod is pitching well, uh, cause I totally expect when he comes back to for him to be pitching well, I hope that moving Joe Kelly into the bullpen is a good move for him. It, it's a move that can help him regain some confidence and get him out there. And also a move that can save Koji Uehara, um, you know, for the, for the stretch run for the Red Sox, because I do believe even though it's early and, you know, they've won some, they've lost some, I, I still do believe that this team can, you know, uh, compete uh, for a spot in the playoffs, whether it be as a wild card, the first or second, or as the um, division championship. They can hit the ball. They just need to get that pitching going. And, you know, once you get Carson Smith back, if you get Joe Kelly into the bullpen and he works hard with that power arm, you could have the makings of a really good bullpen where outside of David Price and Erod, you know, if you get five you know, six innings out of your out of your starter at three or less runs, a quality start, you know, you can pass it over that bullpen and with all these guys they they can just they, they can be like Kansas City has been in the last couple of years. Jeff, most of Joe Kelly's starts look like this. One bad inning undoes a night of good work uh-huh. for him. And most of the time that bad inning comes around the fourth inning, and he rarely makes it past the sixth inning. So between how much he's hurting your bullpen and how much he's hurting your team from that one bad inning, you can see that he's tailor-made to come out of the bullpen as a relief pitcher where he can rely almost exclusively on his two best pitches, the fastball 
and the changeup, and it would make things a lot easier for this team, especially in the situation they're in now, without being able to rely on Carson Smith. So the question then becomes, if you move him to the bullpen, what does the starting rotation look like? Who takes his place? And it was interesting to hear you say that you'd like to keep Stephen Wright in the rotation because he's pitched well. I've always viewed that as a given that when Eddie Rodriguez came back, Stephen Wright would become a long reliever for this team in case you run into a situation where a pitcher like a, I don't know, say Joe Kelly can't go more than four innings, that you can bring in Stephen Wright to get a few innings out of the way, and then you can rely on your middle relief pitchers like a Carson Smith, like a Tazawa, then go to Koji, and then the flamethrower Craig Kimbrell. But the problem here, Jeff, is once Rodriguez comes back, if he takes Joe Kelly's spot and you want to move Stephen Wright, you really left with limited options of who you could use as that number five starter. So I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense if that is in fact their plan for Joe Kelly to transition him now to the bullpen. Rodriguez takes his spot and then Stephen Wright just stays in the rotation. Yeah, and that's the one thing with Stephen Wright and you know, now that we have Christian Vasquez, uh, you know, back behind the dish, um, you could move uh, right into a bullpen position. Um, I know we had a pass ball the other day, but I'm a lot more comfortable with Christian Vasquez catching the knuckleballer um, if he were to come out of the, the um, <clears throat> you know, the bullpen outside of Blake Swihart. Uh, you know, I, I really would much rather Vasquez be doing that, even though I believe Right now, Wright is still your number five starter. Jeff, I'm glad you went to the catching situation. Christian Vasquez came in. He had a great first night and seemed to solidify his place in the mind of Red Sox fans. So it becomes a question, if the Red Sox do in fact roll with Christian Vasquez, looking at the impact he has on this rotation, and he's even had a couple nice at-bats, that seems to be few and far between as he gets more time here. But, you know, he has looked better at the plate than prior to his injury. So the question becomes what to do with Blake Swihart. And you look at left field, that is soon to be Andrew Benintendi's spot. And I saw him play recently, and he was fantastic and lived up to the hype. And then you look at the fact that at first base, they've got Sam Travis in the pipeline. At third base, Travis Shaw is holding his own. So there's really not a spot for Blake Swihart. I think he ultimately is not long for Boston as long as Christian Vasquez can stay healthy and doesn't have another major injury. But the question becomes, how do you maximize his value and not trade him too soon? I don't think you do trade him. Uh, I, I like the fact of keeping, you know, two young catchers on this staff because right now, if, I, if I'm looking at this, I'm looking at Vasquez and, and I'm thinking a young Jason Veritek. And obviously Veritek um, would call a great game. And we've seen at a, such a young age what Christian's been able to do. Um, but he doesn't have that plate discipline yet that Veritek really didn't have when he was traded uh to the Red Sox from the Seattle Seahawks, uh, Seattle Seahawks. We're talking football. We'll now. get there in just um, a second. <laughs> but from the uh, Seattle Mariners, um, 
but I, I think it, I, I wouldn't give up on Swihart. And I look at Swihart, and, and you know, you're right. Benintendi is could be that left fielder of the future. But I wouldn't mind, you know, down back down in Pawtucket, you know, allowing him to play a little third, allowing him to play a little first base, and allowing him, you know, to play some of the outfield corner positions. See what you can get with him. See what kind of guy you get because, you know, you can bring him in. He can be that super utility player. He can be that backup catcher. Um, you know, and, and really, with David Ortiz retiring at the end of this season, I, we're all looking at it and we're saying, you know, even though he's been pretty good this season at first base, that's Hanley Ramirez's spot. He's going to be the DH here in the last three or four years of that contract. So, you know, as you're waiting for Sam Travis to come up, why not put Blake Swihart, use him over at first base? Use him at third base and allow Travis Shaw to move back over to his natural position of uh, first base. This is a, and of course, Travis Shaw isn't exactly you know a spring chicken either. He's he's closing in on thirty, so you know this is so, someone that you can really um, do a lot of things with. And I would not trade him unless you could go out there and get a really solid number two pitcher, and he's part of that um, you know that that trade to get a solid number two pitcher behind uh, David Price. That's the only reason I would trade Blake Swihart. Jeff, I like Blake Swihart, and I think that his ability to call a game is going to improve the more time he gets down in Pawtucket. And I love him at the plate and his speed on the base path for a catcher. However, they just don't have a spot for him. Sam Travis is probably going to be ready to start at first base next season Ben Intendi might be ready to start in left field next season as well oh absolutely this is a very good problem for the Red Sox and especially for Dave Dombrowski to have and then you look at Blake Swihart and the possibility of transitioning to third base that is a huge reclamation project I'm not saying looking at Swihart's build and athleticism that he couldn't do it but he's not even ready to play third base at the AAA level, he he is very far behind the eight ball for switching over to that position. It's common to see catchers go to first base or left field. Third base is a whole other story, and there's no telling how that would unfold. You remember Daniel Bard trying to transition to becoming a starting pitcher, and it, Ugh, that it was completely the worst in Red Sox history. his career eroded after that. And with Blake Swihart, there's a possibility that that gamble and trying to make him a third baseman never pays off. So I think what you have to do here is stick to him playing at his natural position, which is catcher, allow him to get better and recoup some of his value as he grows on the defensive side of things. But ultimately you just can't have two starting caliber catchers as much as you want to, from a team perspective, there's, the player, there's the player's agent, too many factors at play to be able to have a scenario like that for such a, for an extended period of time. So I would like to see the Red Sox hold on to Blake Swihart past this season. I don't look at this team and see an urgency to have to go out and get that number two pitcher behind David Price right now at this moment in time. So I'd like to see Swihart finish out the year with the Red Sox but ultimately, I just don't think they have a spot for him. 
And one of the things, though, there, Bobby, that you know, you mentioned the play, you mentioned the agent. What, what we really didn't mention there is Dave Dabrowski. Now, I know he's not the general manager. He's, he's the president now. But this is a guy that likes to trade top prospects for proven players. Um, you know, you go back to uh, Miguel Cabrera and D-Train in Detroit, um, you know, trading, uh, trading for these guys, um, you know, and trading up some really good talent. Uh, Andrew Miller, who spent a little time with the Red Sox, was considered one of the best uh, pitching prospects uh, in the Major League Baseball when they traded him. And so this is the type of thing, you know, no one in the AAA level, um, you know, is untouchable with, with Dave D as the president of the Boston Red Sox. You know, you could see them swing a trade and, and big names like Swihart, like Henry Owens, and, and, you know, like uh, Johnson, you could see them making these trades when there's a logjam at a position, uh, getting rid of these guys and bringing in guys that can contribute right away. Jeff, that's an excellent point. Two players that I would put money on being dealt at some point in time are Blake Swihart and Rafael Devers, another player who I think will be very good by the time he's ready for the major leagues. But you look at Moncada playing second base, Bogart's at shortstop, and I just don't see a position for Rafael Devers either. So I think those are two high prospects that the Red Sox and Dombrowski are likely to move at some point in time. And you're right, it's likely to be for pitching. You also talked about the fact that Dombrowski has a tendency to treat no one, especially at the uh, as a prospect, as an untouchable. Well, what about his manager, John Farrell, I'm curious to present this scenario to you, Jeff, and hear what you have to say. If the Red Sox are 500 at the end of May, does Dombrowski show John Farrell the door? Slippery slope there. I mean, what kind of 500 are they? Are they the type of 500 that, you know, it's they win four or five games in a row and, you know, they're four games over 500 and then they lose three out of four, or is it, you know, basically what it's been to start this season, win one, lose one, win one, lose one, win, win two, lose two, you know, uh, that, that's the whole thing. Is it, is it, it's a slippery slope with this guy. Um, personally, I, I, outside of 2013, where I really think the Sox caught lightning in a bottle, um, you know, after the marathon bombings really just came together as a team um, and, and really lucked out of a, uh, getting a World Series win, uh, Farrell, is, to me, has never been a great manager. He wasn't very good in Toronto. Um, you know, why Why the Red Sox were so enamored with him. Now, it paid off with a World Series championship, but two last-place finishes, um, and, and with Troy Lavulo sitting in the wings there, yeah, I could see if, if they're 500, two, three games under 500 in May, you know, make that shakeup. Um, and again, bringing back uh, you know, Dave D. I, I know he wasn't part of the 2003 um, championship out there for the um, Florida Marlins, but John Henry was. Uh, excuse me, John Henry had already sold the team, but they did that trade uh, uh, shakeup for their manager in May and went on to win a World Series. So it can happen. Yeah, I like that point, Jeff. And I think that ultimately, John Farrell is not going to make it through this season. 500 at the end of May, the reason I specifically targeted that scenario is because of how tough it is 
to pin down whether it's a yes or a no if that's what Farrell has to show for this team through the end of the first two months of the season. And, okay, do we want to try and go all in to salvage this season? Are we still thinking World Series contention? Or do we say, you know what, 500 is good enough. Let's not rush this thing and give John Farrell some more time. And ultimately, I think Dombrowski would probably lean that way if the team is playing 500 ball at the end of May. But I don't think that John Farrell would be able to avoid being given a pink slip by the end of the summer, even if the team's 500 at the end of May. I think that this team seems like they're they're destined to have that at least one-month slide that's probably going to cost John Farrell his job. And even if he gets through this season, if it is short of expectations, I think that Dombrowski will hand the keys over to Lavula. Segwaying now. And it go could ahead, work. Jeff. You, it, you, you know, it could work. I mean, looking back at, uh, at, at that 2003 Marlins team, you know, Jeff Torborg got off to a 16-22 and 22 start, and then they bring in Jack McKeon, make a bunch of moves, and – and it could work. I understand that it was after Dabrowski had left and after Henry had sold the team, but still, it could work. And you saw what Lavulo did at the end of last season. Now, I know there were no, you know, uh, really the games, I'm not going to say the games didn't matter, but there wasn't as much pressure um, as there is to start the season. I could see it happening again. If they're not, I mean, I want to see them five, six, ten, ten games over five hundred by the end of May, or, or 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 pull the plug. You know, you've you've got a long enough uh, history now with John Farrell. Yeah, that's ultimately why I think Farrell is bound to get the axe sooner rather than later because you know what you have in him. And 2013 was clearly an outlier, as you put it. They caught lightning in a bottle, and that was a very fun team to watch. It came at a critical time for the city of Boston with the marathon bombings. And it was, it was very special that that team was able to go all the way and win another World Series trophy, first to three this millennium. But still, that was clearly an outlier for John Farrell. So I think that much like the general manager that brought him in, Ben Charrington, that Farrell is not long for Boston either. Yeah, he's on the way out, just like uh, Ben Charrington, who made some really poor decisions uh, for the Boston Red Sox. Jeff, luckily, the Patriots have a much more competent GM. And for those that criticize Bill Belichick, the general manager, he was once again ranked the number one GM in the NFL. Believe me, the guys had more hits than misses, and it's resulted in four Lombardi trophies. So I wouldn't knock his ability in the front office. You know what it is? There's there's no sexiness because they don't go out and they don't turn around and win March. And and that's the big problem. They don't go around and they don't win March. You know, too many people sit there, fantasy football-minded people, uh, guys that plug in the PlayStation 4 or Xbox One or whatever they're calling it now, throwing the Madden game and, you know, they're playing online and, 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 you know, against a bunch of friends and, Next thing you know, it's free agency season. You're throwing big money at players, and it makes a huge difference in Madden because, you know, Madden and and fantasy football camaraderie doesn't matter. You know, you you can get the fastest player in Madden. You can get the highest scoring player in fantasy. 
it doesn't matter. That's going to help you win. In the NFL, you have to build a team. And if you look at the last three Super Bowl champions, you know, the New England Patriots, uh, Denver Broncos, and of course the Seattle Seahawks, what do you have in common with all three of those teams? All three had very good defenses that played extremely well. They were deep. They had a lot of different things on offense that they could do. Even the Denver Broncos offense, even with Peyton Manning being hurt, they, you know, could do things. They had a running game. They had a short passing game that could work, and they were balanced across the way. And 1 through 53, these were great rosters. That 2013 Seattle Seahawks team was so good because it was built through the draft and with the right amount of free agency sprinkled in that allowed them to have a low payroll that was able to just develop and, and, and be great. Richard Sherman, uh, you know, Wilson, these guys are guys that were just brought up from underneath and, and brought up. You look at the Patriots, uh, you know, the year before last, you have homegrown talent right there sprinkled in with, with the free agents. And even the Denver Broncos, while they did spend more than others on free agents, they did have homegrown talent. You know, Chris Harris, an undrafted free agent, starting across from Akib Tlaib, a free agent, um, you know, big big money signing. Uh, Vaughn Miller starting across from, you know, where a big money free agent signing and then allowing, you know, two running backs uh, in, in Anderson and Ronnie Hillman, two guys that were unheard of going with their big time quarterback acquisition in Peyton Manning. These are teams that were built up. You don't see the Philadelphia Eagles going out and spending huge money on Namdi Asamoah and all those other guys that they did in 2011 winning a Super Bowl. Uh, you remember a couple of years ago, uh, the Miami Dolphins with uh, Mike Wallace and, and, and all the other guys that they signed that year, they, they won March. And, and last year they won March again with Indomitian and Sue. That's not how you win in the NFL and unfortunately, some Patriots fans just have not figured that out, that sexy doesn't win. Sexy doesn't win. The, the big sexy that the Patriots ever signed was a Dallas Thomas, who had a phenomenal 2007 season and then became a cancer in the locker room. So it does not happen. Go back, watch Bill Belichick, A Football Life. You talk about how he just can't get this team to play that he wants, and that team was built a lot, had, you know, didn't have great drafts in 2007 and 2008. From 2006, 2007, 2008, and even to a point 2009, didn't have great drafts, and they were rebuilding on the fly. They had lost Rodney Harrison. They had lost Teddy Bruschi. They had lost these guys that, you know, were, were brought up through the ranks. I understand that Harrison was a free agent signing, but these guys that were brought up through the ranks it took a little while to rebuild until 2014 when they got over the hump again. Yeah, I don't think people realize, and it's an interesting time period to revisit, that not long after 2007, that you know, right around 2010, the Patriots were rebuilding. They're just so good, and the AFC East was so bad at that time that they were able to win the division to get to the playoffs, and sometimes the AFC championship while they were retooling the roster. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, you're a hundred percent. They were retooling that roster after the 2007 season, 
really that 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 gap year was the year that Brady got hurt, and you saw a team that finished eleven and five, and that was that last gasp. That was that last gasp of the great uh, Patriots teams of the first half of this century, and it wasn't until two thousand eleven. Um, you know, that the Patriots had built things back up through the draft, drafting guys like Rob Gronkowski, drafting guys like Devin McCourty, you know, Sebastian Vollmer, Julian Edelman, these type of guys that were able to build themselves back up and allow this team to get back to where they were. They rebuilt on the fly, um, you know, and, and, and it took it took a lot out of them. But it just goes to show you the greatness of Bill Belichick, the, the coach, Tom Brady, the quarterback, and Bill Belichick, the general manager, who basically was taking guys, um, you know, that were the 53rd and 54th and 60th player on the roster, and due to injuries, due to this, due to that, still staying competitive year after year after year. Jeff, Bill Belichick, the GM, is making another interesting move this offseason as he continues to phase out the pass-rushing defensive tackles, getting rid of Chris Jones, parting ways with Dominique Easley, a first-round pick who's only got two seasons under his belt. It's the earliest that he has given up on a first-round pick. It's very interesting to see how the Patriots seem to be adjusting their philosophy at the defensive tackle position. What are your thoughts on that, and how do you interpret the moves the Patriots are making on the interior of the defensive line. It's interesting, Bobby. You know, you and I have talked about this in the past, and we, we go back and forth between 3-4, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, you know, odd, even man front, different kinds of kinds of things. Once they signed Terrence Knighton, who, you know, is basically a, a good to better run-stuffing, uh, defensive tackle, a guy that could, um, you know, play a three, a three, four and be a great two gapping nose tackle. Um, this is the type of guy that they've kind of shifted philosophies again here. We saw in 2000 and 2001, 2002, the Patriots running that three, four, uh, you know, defense and having guys like, uh, Ted Washington, um, you know, be that nose tackle and bringing in Vince Wilfork. And then by two, 2006, 2007, you know, it, it basically used to just be the Pittsburgh Steelers and the and the New England Patriots that ran that three four. Then all of a sudden, everyone started running that three four, and those tackles became harder and harder to find. Now, ever since the Seattle Seahawks started to win with with their brand of style, the attacking defensive tackles and the attacking uh, you know uh, guys off the edge, more and more teams are moving towards that four man front again. Uh, so I'm looking at this, and again, I'm seeing Bill Belichick being ahead of the curve. And he's sitting there, more and more teams are going away from the 3-4. I can bring in Terrence Knighton. I can have Alan Branch and Malcolm Brown flank him for an extremely, extremely large three-man front. But I've also brought in some sub-rushers in Chris Long, uh, you know, in the guys that they drafted last year, uh, in Geno Grissom and Flowers. Um, and, and these are guys that can play with their hand in the dirt when they're in that sub package on second and long and third and long um, where they can get after and still rotate. So I, I see a little bit of a philosophy change. 
uh, in the fact that their base defense might look more like the 3-4 of, of yesteryear, uh, but still having the flexibility to play a four-man aggressive front when need be. Jeff, that 3-4 versus 4-3 versus 5-2 debate was one of the best debates that we ever had in the history of the Patriots Beat podcast. What we've also, part of that debate and part of what ended that debate was just breaking everything down with the understanding that it doesn't matter all that much, whether it's a 3-4, whether it's a 4-3, it is far more about responsibilities than it is alignment. But here's my thing with this particular group of front seven the Patriots have assembled. And obviously the draft is going to play out shortly, and that's another part of the equation here. But nonetheless, you look at who they have up front in Allen Branch, and Terrence Knighton, and I'm purposely leaving out Malcolm Brown because he's an exception to the rule here. Those are players that need to be a part of a rotation, that have been a part of a rotation their entire career. So you cannot all of a sudden ask those two players to be out there as starters full-time and go with three big-body defensive tackles and then you can use them however you want. You can call them whatever positions you want. But we know who the Patriots have on the edges with Ninkovich and Sheard and Long and Flowers and on down the line. And so I think it'd be really dicey to rely on a draft pick, Frank Curse and Marcus Kuhn, to be those backups rotating in with those guys logging such heavy snap loads throughout the course of a game and throughout the course of the season. I think that has disaster written all over it in the long term for the Patriots. So I think ultimately what I'd like to see New England do and the way that I'm choosing to interpret this right now before the draft, before training camp, is that the Patriots are going to rely on two stout defensive tackles up front and where they want to create pressure in situations where there's a genuine possibility, a genuine threat of a run, they will send one, if not two, of Dante Hightower and Jamie Collins up the middle. Or they'll up that A-gap, Absolutely. Baby. We've seen those are two of the best blitzing linebackers, especially coming through the inside. And then they can also create pressure up the middle by running stunts, twists, and games where you send someone like a Ninkovich or a Sheard through the middle. And then, of course, in more obvious passing situations, you slide one of those guys, especially Jabal Sheard, to the inside. And another reason I like this, Jeff, is because it saves roster spots. The two things Bill Belichick values most are dependability, knowing that you're going to be out there each and every Sunday, and then secondly, roster spots. So I really like it from that sense, and that's how I'm choosing to interpret it. And, you know, I mean, looking at guys like Alan Branch and a guy like, uh, you know, uh, Porkchop, Pot roast. Um, pot roast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pot we, we talked about it with the Celtics. You got to stick to your instincts. You're wicked smart, kid. You know what you're talking about. Wick, wicked smart, dude. Well, I had pork chops for dinner. Ah. They were they were good. Apparently, they're still dancing pot. around in your mouth. The dance, the, uh, the sugar plums are dancing <laughs> in the head. I can't wait to get done with the podcast and go have a little seconds. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but you know what? It, it's not like pot roast and and, and uh, branch can't collapse the pocket because they've both shown ability in the past. Uh, to collapse the pocket, and, and, and you know you've got 
Potrow's sitting at 355, I believe, and you have Alan Branch uh, sitting at about 345. So these are two big, stout defense linemen, and, and I hadn't been thinking as much about that A-gap pressure, but you can also have these guys, you know, motor it up for a play or two and push the interior in and then have a Jamie Collins coming around the, the outside uh, in a blitz, have a Chris Long coming around the outside, uh, you know, with, with with a stunt to the outside. These are the type of things that, you know, um, Bill Belichick and uh, and the rest of the defensive staff are really going to be able to do. And, and the defense was great last year, but even with the loss of Dominic Easley and, uh, you know, Akeem Hicks, and even with a little bit of what looks like a philosophy change, the team has the ability to be just as good, if not better, um, moving forward into the season. So I'm looking at it. I'm excited about what I see. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out with the X's and O's. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, Jimmy Jimmy Garoppolo um, now looks like probably the the one savior for the 2014 class. Um, you know, I love Brian Stork and, and James White, but that 2014 class now with, with easily getting cut, uh, all, all more and more looking at Jimmy Garoppolo going, why? <laughs> he is certainly proving to be the saving grace from that class. James White might not even make the roster. That will have... That would be a mistake. Will, we'll see what happens, Jeff, but it's probably going to have a lot to do with how early the Patriots draft a running back. They might target one as high as the second round. It's probably not a position the Patriots would trade up for in the second round, but sticking with this round, who do you think are some players that the Patriots would move up to get? Again, we're specifically focusing on round two. Uh, Round two, I mean, I could see them trading up. uh, Now we're looking at, uh, you know, as we've talked about this um, Patriots draft over the last couple weeks um you know we we talked about an outside wide receiver we've talked about running back we've talked about defensive tackle I, I could see them moving up to grab a defensive tackle uh you know they just released Chris Jones but there's another Chris Jones coming out of I believe it's Mississippi State mm-hmm. uh that they could move up for um Day the the, the kid out of uh, Notre Dame uh you know a, a kind of a tweener but r- roughly that same size um, as Dominic Easley, that same penetrating uh, pass rusher that could get in there, could do that. Stay the hell away from the kid from Florida. What's it, Bullard? Uh, Bullard. Um, I'm done with uh, I'm done with Florida kids. The, no, no Florida kid has ever worked out for the Patriots in the long run. So stay away from that. They can move up for any one of that. Uh, I don't see them moving up for a wide receiver. Uh, I, I just don't see it happening. Um, they could move up for if there's a run on, run on running backs. I wouldn't be surprised if they moved up for a guy like your uh, Binky Booker, uh, the guy that I really like, and and he may be there at the end of the uh, end of the second round. Is actually um, uh, Derek Henry's backup at at Alabama, uh, Kenyon Drake. I, I really like what I see out of this kid. Any other college football program, you know, he's he's carrying the rock three hundred times. For 15 to 1,700 yards, uh, he can catch the ball out of the backfield, get a little speed burner. I like it that. Uh, but I don't see them moving up for a wide receiver anymore. 
Um, I could see them possibly if there's a run on running backs, defensive tackle, like I just said, and cornerback. Tell me where Jones from Alabama, uh, you know, where he's sitting, where he's looking, because he's a guy that played in a very similar defense to uh, what Bill Belichick runs and played very well against a great competition in the SEC. Jeff, I don't think I've ever disagreed with as oh, much man. of what you've said before. I'm going to get to the big ticket item last. So let's start with the fact that the second round is too high to select a running back like Kenyon Drake, not to mention the fact, and this is not to say I don't think... You don't know running backs. Not, <laughs> no, well, that's true. No one knows running backs as well as Jeff Cade, but the type of running back that Kenyon Drake is goes against what you and I have been saying all along that the Patriots should be looking for and someone they can rely on as a first and second down back he's got versatility to his game not to mention the fact that he can contribute on special teams I think he's going to be a good player at the next level but he's not the type of running back that the Patriots need especially not if they're going to spend a second round pick at that position secondly Jeff you're gonna tell me to stay away from Jonathan Bullard just because of the other failures, the other strikeouts yep. the Patriots have had at Florida. Let me tell you something. Yep. That is not how you win. And I understand that I might even be in the minority. I might even be on an island all by myself, but I'll die on this hill for a player, the caliber of Jonathan Bullard, for a school Ugh. that recruits Get me quality away. of talent that the Gators consistently get. Listen, maybe he should tune out Urban Meyer more than he should tune out the Florida Gators football program. Bullard is someone who has the versatility to rush from the inside or play at the end of the line. He is he's a him. similar product to Dominic <laughs> Easley, except him. he's got his head on straight. And well, yeah, maybe he's got his head. On. I still he's from Florida. I, I'm done with Florida Gators. Too. And listen, there's plenty that he needs to improve at. But you watch this kid on tape, and there's no reason to think he can't get better and make those adjustments. This is an ascending talent who is yet to peak. As long as he puts in the work and puts on the necessary muscle to his frame, he's going to be a very disruptive player in the NFL. And if he's a Patriot, Jeff, I'm getting you his jersey because you're going to love him. Well, you know what? If he doesn't wash out, I mean, really, uh, this has just been horrible. I mean, here's the thing with, with, with Florida players and, and the Patriots. They, they just don't work out when they draft them. Now, they, they can work out. You know, if they sign them as free agents, we, we, we've seen them do that with Jabbar Gaffney. Uh, you know, that was that was a good workout. But I mean, really, you look back at, at the list, and I understand that you can't, you know, judge an entire school by by a couple of things. And, and I do say this in jest. You know, keep me away from Florida players. But really, it's kind of crazy when you look back. Um, you know, Tony George and uh, was one of the first picks. Um, and you know, we've seen some of these other guys that they've, they've drafted, uh, Aaron Hernandez, who was awesome. Don't tell me he wasn't awesome, but look what ended up happening. To I'd him. say that the uh, even, negatives outweighed the positives on that. Draft yeah, it's just, I keep, keep me away from Gainesville, man. Just, just keep me away from Gainesville. Uh, you know, and maybe I say that cause I got the Georgia Bulldogs, uh, Jersey on tonight. How do you side on the Brandon Spike selection? You know, that's one of those things that. He was a good player while he was here, uh, the first stint. But, you know, just, I mean, just dumb. You know, leaves New England and says four years a slave. 
you know, and and then you remember the the sex tape that came out. I mean, yeah, he brought a physical presence to this team, but what did they ever win with him? They they didn't win anything with him. You know, that was the big thing. And then then he comes back, and you know, we're all excited last year. Number fifty five's back, setting that tone. Uh, this is going to be great. And all he does is, you know, the biggest hit that he has is on the highway. Yeah, his second stint basically didn't even count. He never played a regular season game here. So he <laughs> didn't even make it through OTA. Yeah, so I really just look at it as one stint in New England for Brandon Spikes. They didn't win. I don't think that was his fault. I love what he brought to the table as that thumping inside linebacker. So overall, I'm going to give him a thumbs up, but there's certainly a strong case that could be made to give Spikes a thumbs down, just not the side that I, I choose to go with. Now, sticking with the draft, as it is coming up in just over a week, listen, everyone knows what the Patriots' positions of need are. And it's also well understood that the order in which they address these positions will largely be based on how the draft plays out. But who are some players that the Patriots fans should be keeping an eye on at each of these positions? Well, I've already talked about defensive tackle. I like the kid out of Notre Dame Day. I like him a lot. Not as Jonathan Bullard, but a player to keep an eye on. That's all right. But I also don't believe that Jonathan (laughs) Bullard is going to be there uh, come pick number 60 and 61. That's one of the guys that, uh, you know, I could see around that time. Uh, At the wide receiver position, um, you know, we talked about it a few weeks ago. You know how I like uh, the kid out of Pittsburgh, Boyd. I like him uh, an awful lot. I think he'd be a perfect fit here for what the New England Patriots do offensively. You don't need a speedster on the outside to take the top off the ball. What you need is a guy on the outside who can catch the 15 to 20 yard out pattern, who can catch the ball, um, you know, on that back shoulder fade uh, that can allow a cornerback to have to really play the entire field, not just sit in the middle of the field and worry about things. They've done a great job, uh, you know, this off season of bringing things in. So I love Boyd. You know my 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 guy that I would love to see here is Tajay uh, Sharp out of UMass. I believe you can get him in the in you know one of the later rounds. You may be able to get him in the sixth round. I think they'll they could probably package a couple of their sixth round picks to move up into the low fourth, high fifth to grab him. Otherwise, he's going to end up in the Pittsburgh Steelers and he's going to be the next Antonio Brown. Whoa! Um, that you know that there. I I love this kid. I. I am so sold on this kid, Sharp, out of UMass. It's unbelievable how sold I am on him. You know, and the running back position, I I really like what Drake brings to the table. Um, If you can't get Drake, and you're right, in the second round, he's probably going to be there. Probably be there at the end of the third round. The other guy I like is C.J. Procise out of Notre Dame. Uh, I think he could do some things, and he's really just scratching the potential of things here. One of the things I'm going to throw out here, Bobby, with 11 picks in the draft for the New England Patriots, I would not be surprised at all to see the Patriots do something that they did back in the 2007 offseason when they traded some of their draft picks for proven veterans. I would not be surprised if the New England Patriots made a phone call to the Kansas City Chiefs and tried to pry Jamal Charles off of that roster, the Kansas City Chiefs 
just re-signed both of their uh, backup running backs who did a fine job in getting them to the playoffs in um, it, this past season. You know, it does one of those second-round picks do, do it? Does a third-round pick do it for a guy coming back from an ACL, uh, you know, wanting to get that ring? They sure as heck did it with Randy Moss with a fourth-round draft pick. I could see them doing it again. Jeff, that feels like you just channeled your inner Nostradamus and predicted the future. I could see that scenario playing out for sure. I would just be skeptical of Jamal Charles, and he suffered two major injuries in recent seasons. So I'd be concerned about the player, but I certainly could see that scenario unfolding as the draft plays on, you know, it's probably not a, a first night deal, but a second day move that I think you got something there, my friend. Yeah, we'll see. Nostra dumbass. We'll try to figure it out. <laughs> well, we'll see if you're right on that one. Some other players, you talk, we've talked about Cyrus Jones, Jonathan Bullard and on down the line, but we, you mentioned Devonte Booker, my two favorite running backs for the Patriots, C.J. Proceis is second, and Devontae Booker from Utah is first. And obviously, for those who are saying, well, what about Derrick Henry? Well, he's not going to be there when the Patriots are picking, and they're not going to trade up to get a running back. So that's just that's an exercise in futility. So anyways, looking at Devontae Booker, this is a three-down running back that can make plays for himself. He can catch the ball. You can rely on him when the defense knows it's a run, to get those necessary yards and move the chains. Really like what he brings to the table. He had a minor injury that he's already completely recovered from. The one knock on him is the fumbles. And you have to see, was that a product of bad luck? How much of a product is it issues that the Patriots feel confident they can address? But it sounds like he's one of the players New England's very high on. So I would not be surprised if the Patriots target him with one of their two second-round picks. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And, Jeff, you didn't think we were going to get through this segment without me bringing up my boy. If you watched Inside the Hoodie, this was just <laughs> as predictable for you. Wide receiver Sterling Shepard. I don't know if he's going to be there, and I don't know how dire – the Patriots look at their situation at wide receiver if they would be willing to trade up just a few spots, maybe seven at the most if he was still on the board. But Sterling Shepard to me has perennial Pro Bowl potential every route on the route tree. Unlike your boy Tyler Boyd, Sterling Shepard makes plays with the ball in his hands and racks up the yards after the catch. This kid to me who comes from and established football pedigree, I think that he's going to be a success in just about any system he goes to, but that New England is the perfect fit, and it's it's a marriage that would work out well for both parties. Only if he's smart enough to get on the same page as Tom Brady. There's nothing to me from his days at Oklahoma that indicates that he wouldn't, not to mention that they wouldn't really need to rely on him this season unless there's injuries Maybe if they cut Danny Amendola, but I just don't think that's going to happen either. So that's the guys for everyone to keep an eye on come draft night. Those are the positions to lock in on as well. Jeff, now we go to the most 
bleak outlook that any of the four professional sports teams in Boston has. And that is the black and gold. The Bruins recently decided to keep Claude Julien. And so my question to you is whether or not that decision is beneficial or detrimental to the future of the Bruins. I don't think you can really look at it either way. Um, is it beneficial? You could say that it is because he is a proven coach. Is it detrimental? Yeah, because I wanted to see them blow this thing up. Uh, you know, they've just trotted out this same lineup ever, pretty much ever since the 2011 uh, Cup team. I mean, there have been minor changes here and there, but they've trotted out the same thing with Claude Julien, and it just isn't working back-to-back. Uh, seasons where with two weeks left in the in this regular season, you know, they were locked into a playoff spot and then just fell apart down the way. Um, I, I would have loved to have seen Julian go, but then, you know, who are you going to replace him with? I just don't feel that the Bruins are in a good spot right now. I, I think that Don Sweeney needs some more time to develop um, – this team around his image. And I wonder how much Don Sweeney's image is what Claude Julian's image is going to be. I also want to know why Cam Neely isn't getting more blame for what's happened. I think that Cam Neely is being put under a brighter spotlight than he was as recently as two weeks before the trade deadline, I think more and more people are starting to question how much power does Cam have and how much of the blame should we lay at his feet? And I think, quite frankly, you look at who's around and the answer is majority of it should go to Cam Neely. This is not an ownership group that has a figure, a personality like a Larry Lucchino. Claude Julien is someone who has stayed in his lane and then what would seem was Cam Neely came down and told him there's a couple adjustments that need to be made in terms of being more flexible with the young guys, especially when it pertains to offensive talents. We need to be a bit more effective at the offensive end. So I think there's some adjustments. I was wondering what that clip was. I didn't hear it until the very end. So that was, <laughs> it was well played by you, but I completely talked over it, not recognizing what it was. I didn't know if you hit something by accident, to be honest, but timely right there, Jeff. Uh, uh, that, it was a terrible mistake, sir. Please, oh, believe me, I would never do anything to offend a man of your size. Kick his ass, Seabass! <laughs> Kick his ass to the curb. See you later, Seabass. Yeah, I think it's time to uh, show Seabass to the door. No sequel in Boston for Cam Neely. <laughs> and I think, quite honestly, that there are a few coaches out there that I don't have a great understanding. It's not my job to know if someone like a Ted Donato could come in and cultivate the young talent here. I can't tell you definitively if it's a yes or a no on someone of that nature, but I certainly think that it would have been worth a shot because right now the Bruins, seem like they're on the verge of a concern we talked about with the Celtics and the Hawks at the beginning of the program, and that is making the type of moves that lock yourself into the middle class, where 
There's no room to move up into becoming a true cup contender. And it's very difficult to move down, to blow up the roster and start from scratch so that you can ultimately work your way back into title contention over time. And it just seems like that's not the direction they're headed, even though it's a process that should begin this offseason. They can't make wholesale changes and start over 100% this offseason, but they can begin to peel the Band-Aid off. They can begin to deal off some parts that don't have a future in Boston and just work towards that goal as they continue to improve their draft capital to restock the pipeline. And it doesn't seem like that's the direction the Bruins are headed, which is so frustrating. And quite frankly, we talked about even on this show before, Jeff, in our first ever episode, how much trust you have in this front office. And I look at the mistakes that Cam Neely and company have repeatedly made. And quite frankly, I have minimal trust that the Bruins are going to get it right. Yeah, me too. But I, you know, you said Teddy Donato, and I'm just thinking Donato and Sweeney, you know, working together. It's a couple of Harvard guys, kid. How you like them apples? Do you like apples? Yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? You know they're wicked smart. My boy's wicked smart. <laughs> well, Jeff, it seems like we're on the same page with the Bruins. It seems like we're both just holding out hope that the Celtics can turn things around as the series comes to Causeway Street. It seems like it's going to be very interesting to see if John Farrell makes it through the month of May or if he makes it through the season at all, which feels like it's highly unlikely, and what they do with Joe Kelly when he comes back off of the disabled list. And as far as the Patriots go, listen, in Bill We Trust, that's the team that every Boston sports fan should be most confident in, and it's going to be very intriguing to see what they do at the NFL draft in a little over a week. We're going to discuss that in depth next week before the draft. You can catch this podcast at a time to be named later, but we will be sure to promote it heavily on Twitter, Facebook, and various other social media outlets. You can find us at the franchise on Twitter, and you can also just follow our personal accounts at Bobby underscore K 91 at Jeff Kane 78. It's just that simple. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. Thank you to my beautiful co-host who's wicked smart, Jeff Kane. Good looking guy. And we will catch you guys on the flip side. I'll catch you on the flip side. Yeah!